Amen. All right, well, we're there in Genesis chapter number 33. I'd like you to keep your place there in Genesis 33 and go with me to the book of Romans, just real quickly. Romans chapter number 9. You're in, you're in Genesis 33, but I want to just show you something real quickly in Romans chapter 9. So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter number 9. Romans chapter number 9. And if you look at verse number uh, 10, Romans chapter 9 and verse 10. Romans 9, 10. The Bible says, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And uh, this passage here in Romans is a favorite of the Calvinists, and I'm not preaching on, on Calvinism tonight, but I, I just want to show you something real quickly before we get into the, the message, uh, because the Calvinists will often go to Romans 9, and they'll go specifically to this story, and they'll try to use this text to prove Calvinism, which Calvinism basically teaches that God chooses who gets saved, and God chooses, and there's no free will of man. We don't get to choose only if God calls you. And they'll, they'll use this passage, because if you look at verse 11, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. And they'll say, see, God chose one over the other. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. Now, what I want you to understand is that that's, they'll use this passage, but here's what you need to, to kind of understand about this. This is a quote from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, and whenever you want to study the Bible, if the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament, it's always a good idea to go to the Old Testament, to go to that quote and read that uh, passage or that, context, uh, that, that quote in its context. Uh, so go with me to Genesis 25, just real quickly, you're in Genesis 33, but go to 25, because I want you to notice, this is a reference back to when Rebekah was having Jacob and Esau, and when he was, she was going to give birth to them, and they say, see, it says there, the elders shall serve the younger, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, and what you need to understand is, when you go back to Genesis 25, it's very clear what God is talking about, is he talking about the man, choosing the man Jacob over the man Esau, and if you look at Genesis 25, look at verse 22, the Bible says, and the children struggled together within her, talking about Rebekah, and she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire the Lord, notice verse 23, and the Lord said unto her, and notice what the Lord said unto her, two nations, you see that? Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bout. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. So notice, when God said the elder shall serve the younger, was he talking about the elder brother Esau will serve the younger brother Jacob? The context is that the descendants of the elder will serve, uh, uh, the, sorry, the, the elders, uh, yeah, the descendants of the elders will serve the descendants of the younger because he said two nations. He said, I'm talking about their descendants. Two nations are in thy womb. Two manner of people shall be separated from thy mouth. So right there, that's enough to say Romans 9 does not teach Calvinism. Romans 9 does not teach that God chose Jacob to be saved and Esau to be condemned. No, he chose Jacob 
who would later be named Israel. He chose the children of Israel. He chose the nation of Israel. He chose the descendants of Israel. And the Bible teaches that very clear. They were elect in the sense that he chose them as the nation in which he would serve. And he said, the descendants of Esau will serve the descendants of Jacob. Now, the reason that that's important is because people will still argue, no, 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 it's not about the descendants. It's not about the, the, the nations. It's about the people. But here's what's interesting. Go back to Genesis 33, our text. Genesis 33. When you look at the men, because the Calvinists are like, no, it's about the people. It's not about the nations. Even though Genesis 25 which is where the quote comes from, is very clear that when it says the elders shall serve the younger, it's talking about the two nations and the two manner of people that shall be separated from thy vows. But when you look at the actual man Esau, and you look at the actual man Jacob, here's a question. Do you ever see Esau serving Jacob? And I think it's pretty clear in this passage that it's not, that's not the case. Look at Genesis 33, verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes. Remember, in the context of the story, Jacob is has, is coming back home, and he sent presents and messengers home to, to, to let them know he's coming back. Esau is now coming to meet him with 400 men. Jacob doesn't know if Esau is coming with good intentions or bad intentions. He, the last time he heard from Esau, Esau swore that he would kill Jacob. So, you know, he's just in a crisis mode. We talked about that last week. Look at verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... Esau came. So now Esau is there. He's within view. He can see him. And with him, 400 men. And he divided the children uh, uh, unto Leah and unto Rachel and unto the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. So uh, uh, he, he he can see Esau coming. He can see the 400 men coming. He separates the family by their mothers, and he puts the two handmaids at the front, puts Leah uh, in the middle. He puts Rachel at the end, look at verse 3, and he, Jacob, passed over before them. So even though... He, he separates them by favoritism, which is why you shouldn't have multiple wives, you know. But he at least goes in front of all of them. You know, he's going to be the one to meet Esau because he doesn't know how things are going to happen. Look at verse 3. And he passed over before him them. Now, I want you to notice what the Bible says. And if you don't mind writing in your Bible, maybe you're going to underline this word or circle this word. But I want you what it says. It says, and bowed. You see that word bowed? Underline, do me a favor, underline that in your Bible or circle that. And bowed himself to the ground seven times until he, Esau, came, I'm sorry, Jacob, came near to his brother. So he sees Esau coming, he goes out in front, and then he bows himself to the ground seven times until uh, his brother Esau came near to him. Look at verse 4. And Esau ran to meet him. Now, look. When you read the Bible, you really, the best way to read the Bible is to put yourself into the story. You know, sometimes when we read the Bible, we just kind of read it and we read it like a textbook. But look, these are real people. These events really happen. Put yourself in the story. You'll enjoy your Bible reading a lot more. Keep in mind, Jacob has been up all night praying, wrestling with God, worried that Esau is coming to seek revenge, coming with 400 soldiers. And now here he is, and he's got his family behind him, and he's watching Esau coming towards him, and he bows himself down to the ground, and he's trying to show Esau, I'm not, I'm not your enemy. I don't want to fight with you. I don't want to have this conflict with you. And the Bible says in verse 4 that Esau ran to meet him. Now look, when Esau gets off the horse and starts running towards Jacob, what do you think Jacob is thinking? You think his heartbeat is speeding up a little bit? I mean, he's probably thinking to himself, 
here we go. What's going to happen now? But notice what the Bible says, verse 4. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. I mean, just think of those moments. You know, he's sitting there bowing himself. Esau comes running to him, and he gives him a big bear hug. At that moment, you know, Jacob's probably like, am I dead? You know, what, what happened? Is this heaven? Notice what it says, verse 4. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Next to my Bible in verse 4, I wrote in parentheses, relief. I mean, wouldn't you have been relieved if you were Jacob? Like, wow, God delivered me. It didn't happen. Look at verse 5. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the woman and the children and said, Who are these with thee? And Jacob said, The children which God had graciously given. Now notice what Jacob says to Esau. Which The children which God hath graciously given. Notice what he says. Thy servant. This is Jacob speaking to Esau. Thy servant. Do me a favor. Underline that. Thy servant. When the handmaids came near, they and their children, and they bowed. Underline that word, bowed, or circle that word, bowed. They bowed themselves. Bilhah and Zilpah and all their, and all their children bowed themselves to Esau. Jacob bowed himself to Esau. Jacob called himself, when referring to Esau, he called him. He said, I'm thy servant. Look at verse 7. And Leah also with her children, came near and, circle this word, bowed themselves. And after came Joseph near and Rachel, and they, circle this word, bowed themselves. So who, who's doing all the bowing at this point? Jacob, his wives, his children. Who's not bowed a knee at all? Esau. And Jacob called himself thy servant. Notice verse 8. And he, that's Esau, said, what meanest thou by all this drove which I met? And he, that's Jacob, said, These are to find grace in thy sight, uh, in thy sight, in, in the sight, excuse me, of, underline these two words, my Lord. Notice how Jacob refers to Esau. He calls himself a servant. He calls himself, he calls Esau my Lord. Jacob bows himself seven times. All the children bow themselves. All the wives bow themselves. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. Never in the Bible do you ever see the man Esau bowing himself to the man Jacob. Never in the Bible do you see the man Esau calling Jacob his Lord and Esau being the servant. So either Romans 9 was talking about the descendants of the children of Israel and the descendants of the children of Esau, which did come under the submission uh, the, 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 the Edomites came under the submission of the Israelites during the reign of King David. Either the Bible is talking about their descendants or the Bible is wrong because the elder never served the younger. And in fact, the opposite is true. Jacob is the one bowing himself. Jacob is the one calling him Lord. Jacob is the one calling himself a servant. And I just want to make that point. I'm not even preaching about that tonight, but I just want to make the point. That when Calvin is taken to Romans 9 and try to see, God chose Jacob. No, no, God chose the children of Israel. He's referring to the nation. And God chooses nations and God can do what he wants. But it's not for salvation. It's not about salvation. God never chooses a man to be saved and another man to go to hell. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So this is something that is highlighted in this passage, that, that it, wasn't, it wasn't Esau bowing down to Jacob. It was Jacob bowing down to Esau. But 
Let, let's kind of get into the sermon tonight, and I, I want to give you three lessons that we can learn. That's just kind of introductory, but let me give you three lessons that we can learn from the confrontation of Esau and Jacob. The first lesson I want you to notice there is the fact, if you look at verse uh, number uh, one again, and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him 400 men. He divided the children unto Leah, and unto Rachel, and unto two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. And Esau ran to meet him. I'm sure Esau was thinking, oh no, here it comes. And embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Now remember, we spent all of chapter 32 doing what with Jacob? Being worried, being afraid. Being scared, praying all night, praying, God, deliver me. Remember, he had that great prayer, and he said, I'm afraid of Esau, and I'm afraid what he's going to do, and I'm afraid what he's going to do to my children, I'm afraid what he's going to do to my wives, and he was scared. But here's what I want you to understand, and here's the first lesson I want you to get from this passage. Most of the things that you and I fear, most of the things that you and I fear never come to pass. Isn't that true? Most of the things we're afraid about. Most of the things we're scared, you know, Esau's coming, Esau's coming. He's going to kill us. He's going to kill the children. He's coming to get revenge. And then Esau shows up and he looks like, he seems like he's a real nice guy. He's just kind of embracing you. He's just kind of hugging you. He just kind of misses you. He just, he just brought 400 men with him because, I don't know, maybe he just runs with 400 men or maybe he's uh, hoping he can leave. We know he wants to leave some of them to help Jacob and all those things. But here's what I want you to understand. Most of the things that we fear never come to pass. Most of the things that we fear never come to pass. Keep your place there in Genesis 33. Go to Philippians chapter number 4. Philippians chapter 4. Now, if you, if you kept your place in Romans, if you kept your place in Romans, which I'm not sure if I told you to or not, but if you kept your place in Romans, you want to go past 1st and 2nd Corinthians, past Galatians, past Ephesians, into the book of Philippians. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Satan will use the tool of fear to paralyze us. It is often fear that stops us. I mean, think about it. Why do most people not want to go soul winning? Because they're afraid. They're afraid. They say, well, if I go out there and I knock on that door, you know, someone's going to yell at me. If I go out there and knock on that door, I may knock on my boss's door, right? If I go out there and knock on that door, you know, the very first, I just know, the very first door, I knock on that door, they open it. Hi, we're coming from very, pow! I just know that's going to happen. And it's like, look, most of the things you're afraid of are just never going to happen. It's very, it's, very, it's very unlikely that you're going to knock on your boss's door. Right? I mean, it's very unlikely that someone's going to just shoot you out. But we're so afraid. What do people think? Well, I can't tithe. I can't, if I give 10% of my income back to God, I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my car. I'm going to lose everything. It's probably not going to happen. You may not be able to go to Starbucks as much. Right? You may not be able to go to Cold Stone as much or whatever, but look, most of the things we're afraid of never come to pass. They just, ne- they, they, and it never happens. Pastors today are afraid to preach hard, to name sin, to go against uh, the grain of society. Why? Why are they afraid? Because they think, if I preach that way, people will leave. If I preach that way, the church will not grow. If I preach that way, you know, whatever it is. And listen to me, if you preach hard, people will leave. 
And if you preach hard, you know some people are going to go. But look, it's not going to ruin your ministry. I'm convinced, the, even the average independent fundamental Baptist church today, I'm convinced if the pastor stood up on a Sunday morning and ripped face against whatever, abortion, homosexuals, whatever, most of the people would like it. Most of the people would be like, finally, our pastor grew a backbone. You know, they'd be happy, they'd be glad, because most Christian people like hard preaching. Most people that are right with God, the Holy Spirit of God, wants to hear that type of preaching. But preachers today are afraid. They're scared. And they say, well, if I preach that way, I'll lose my ministry, I'll lose my church. And look, the likelihood of that happening is just not true. Most of the things we fear never come to pass. Most of the things we fear never come to pass. Are you there in Philippians chapter 4? So here's a lesson. Listen, listen, before you look at Philippians 4. Most of the things we fear never come to pass. Therefore, quit worrying. We worry more. We worry more about things that are never going to happen. Things that are never going to come to pass. Things that it's probably never, you know, because we, we tend to, you know, we, we, we have like the worst case scenario. I mean, the worst, you know, we always think like the very worst thing. And then when it happens, it's like, it's not that bad. is isn't that bad. Remember the, you know, the, the day of the protests? Everybody was scared. I, I was scared. You know what I mean? I was like, man, what are we going to do? We're going to walk, are they going to burn the building down? You know, we're going to come in here, we're all going to die here, martyrs, you know? And then, and then, you know, what did everybody say afterwards? It wasn't that bad. It, was, it wasn't terrible. We survived it. I mean, did you survive? I, I don't know. Were there any casualties I wasn't aware of? It wasn't terrible. It was okay. I'm just, I'm just telling you, most of the things we fear never come to pass. Therefore, don't worry so much. Are you there in Philippians 4? Look at verse 6. Notice what the Bible says. Philippians 4, verse 6. Be careful for nothing. The word careful there is talking about worry. He says, be careful for nothing. He said, don't, don't worry. Don't worry about things. Don't worry. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And listen to me. Here's what the Bible is teaching. Whenever you're worried about something, see that as a great opportunity to pray. Take, take that anxiety. Take that Worry, take that fear to God. He says, be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Because here's the truth. A lot of things we worry about, there's just nothing we can do about it. I mean, the truth is, most of the things we're afraid, we're afraid, you know, this is going to happen and that is going to, but here's the thing, here's the truth. You're just as likely to get shot out to a winning as you are going to the grocery store. As you are going to the dentist, as you are just going to work, in fact, if anything, you're more likely to get shot at the grocery store, I think, you know. Here's what I'm trying to say. Don't worry so much about everything because here's the thing. If you can do something about it, then do something about it. If you can't do something about it, then you can't do anything about it anyway. And most of the things we're afraid of never come to pass. Most of the things we fear never even Happen. Go to First Peter chapter five. You're there in Philippians. You're going to go past Colossians, past First and Second Thessalonians, past First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, First Peter. First Peter chapter five. Look at verse seven. First Peter chapter five, verse seven. First Peter chapter five and verse seven. Notice what the Bible says. Remember the bi- the biblical word for worry is care, and in First Peter chapter five and verse seven, the Bible says this: casting all your care. Casting all your worry, casting all your care upon him. Talking about Jesus. Why? For he careth for you. See, we like to read that. We like to read that 
like, casting all your care upon Jesus because he cares for me, right? Because we're this emotional, you know, Sesame Street, you know, we all grew up on Sesame Street and we all grew up on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So we're, like, we're just this emotional society. Have you noticed that? You know, Americans today are just really, like, emotional, you know? Oh, you won't play with my children or whatever, you know? And we like to, we look at the Bible in that way where he says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for me. And we like, we like that because we're like, Jesus cares for me. But you know what? I don't believe that's what the Bible is teaching there. Because the biblical word for worry is care. Here's what he's saying. Casting all your worry upon him because he worries for you. Here's what he's saying. God, let God worry. Here's how Jesus said. He said, take no thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. He said, you got enough to worry about today. Why are you worried about what's going to happen next week? He said, he said, God knows, God knows what you need. God knows that you need raiment. God knows that you need a job. God knows that you need to pay your bill. He's not saying God cares about you. He's saying God worries on your behalf. He's saying you don't have to worry because God will worry for you. God will care for you. God will take care of you. You just do what God called you to do. You just do what you know you're supposed to do. And let God, here's what he's saying, let God deal with the rest. But what do we like to do? Worry. Well, God, if God doesn't come through. Well, look, he's came through every other time. Why are you worried about it? And, I, and look, God loves you. There's enough verses to tell you God loves you and God cares about you. But here's what I want you to know. Not only does God care about you, God worries on your behalf. God is as worried about you paying your bills as you are. God is as worried about your health as you are. God is as worried about your children's education as you are. So here's the thing. You can cast all your care. You can cast all your worry upon him, for he careth for you. So why should we not worry? Why should we not fear? Why should we not stress? Why should we not, you know, get upset and all riled up? And I didn't sleep last night. Jacob said, I didn't sleep last night. I was up all night, all night worried. Why, Jacob? Most of the things we fear never come to pass. Most of the things we're afraid of never even happen. Most of the Esau's we're afraid of never even hurt us. Go back to Genesis 33. Genesis 33. Lesson number one tonight is... Most of the things we fear never come to pass. Lesson number two is this. Lesson number two is this. To be right with God, you must be right with your brother. Some of you need to write that down. To be right with God, you must be right with your brother. The the opposite is this. You cannot be at odds with your brother and be right with God. Are you there in Genesis 33? Look at verse 10. Genesis 33, verse 10. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee. If I have found grace in thy sight, because remember Esau just got, in fact, look, look at verse 5. Uh, I'm sorry, not, not verse 5. Let's see. Look at verse uh, 8. Genesis 33 and verse 8. And he said, this is Esau, what meanest thou by all this drove which I met? Because remember, Esau, uh, Jacob's sending him all the, all the cattle and all the camels and all the good. And, and Esau's, what, what do you mean by all this? And he said, these are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough. I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. Now notice what Jacob says, verse 10. And Jacob said, Nay, he said, No, no, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face. Now notice what he says. For therefore I have seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God. Do you see that? Now, what just happened in the last chapter? 
Didn't Jacob see the face of God? Didn't Jacob wrestle with God all night long, Peniel, and he said that he saw God? Now, I want you to notice Jacob makes this connection because it's not a coincidence that in chapter number 32, Jacob gets right with God, and in chapter 33, Jacob gets right with Esau. Because you cannot get right with God without getting right with your brother. You cannot be at odds with your brother and think that you have things right with God. And the proper order is this. When you see God face to face, when you wrestle with God face to face, then you also have to make. When Jacob made things right with God, he also had to make things right with his brother. I mean, look what he says, verse 10. And Jacob said, May I pray thee? If now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face. Talking about Esau. As though I have seen the face of God, and thou was pleased with me. Now notice what he says. Look at verse 11. Take, I pray thee, my... Circle this word. Take, I pray thee, my blessing. Do you see that? What did Jacob steal from Esau? Wasn't it his blessing? He stole the blessing from Esau. So you know what Jacob's now doing? He said, here's a blessing that actually belonged to you. Here's what I stole from you. He said, I can't actually give you the blessing back. He said, I can't actually go back in time, 20 plus years, and and, and take the lie back, and take the deception back, and and, and come clean to to our dad, and, and, and make sure that you got it. But he said, here's what I can do. I can confess it before God, I can confess it before you, and I can try to make it right to the best of my ability. He said, take, look, look verse 11. Take, I pray thee, my blessing. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee. He said, I stole a blessing from you. And he said, I'm going to do the best I can to bring a blessing back to you. I stole a blessing from you, but I want to make things right. And I want to do the best I can to bring a blessing back to you. Because God had dealt graciously with me. And because I have enough. And he urged them, notice, notice. And he took it. See, in our relationships with men, in our relationships with God, when we make things right, we have to try to make things right, not just by asking for forgiveness, but we have to try to make them as right as possible in in, in the actual sense. Here, Jacob is actually physically saying, here's what I took from you. Now, there are times when we wrong people in a way where there's nothing we can do, and we just repent and ask for forgiveness and, and try to do the best. But when it comes to making things right with your brother, you need to try to figure out, how can I pay this back? How can I make this right? And here Jacob says, I stole a blessing from you, and I want to return a blessing to you. Go to 1 John chapter number 4. 1 John chapter 4. If you're there in um, wherever you were just a second ago, where were you? In uh, 1 Peter? If you go uh, past First Peter and uh, past First, Second Peter into First John, or if you start from Revelation backwards, you're gonna go past Jude, Third, Second, and First John. Go to First John chapter four. While you go there, let me read this in First Corinthians eleven eighteen. Paul said this to the church at Corinth. He said, "For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. You know that it's common in the church life for people to be at division, where people have problems with each other." I'm going to sit on this side of the auditorium and you sit on that side of the auditorium. And here's what God says. God says you need to try to make things right. When you wrong someone, when you lie about someone, when you do something wrong, you criticize someone, you hurt someone, you, you steal from them, whatever it is, you know, you need to try to make those things right. Because here's the thing. You cannot be right with God without being right with your brother. 1 John 4.20. Let's look at what the Bible says. Notice what the Bible says. 1 John 4.20. The Bible will mess you up if you actually start reading it. 1 John 4.20. If a man say, I love God... And hated his brother. You catch that? 
If a man say, I love God and hated his brother, he is a liar. He doesn't love anybody. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Isn't that what Jacob said? I have seen thy face. Like I saw God. And if I'm going to make things right with God, I've got to make things right with Esau. If a man say, I love God and hated his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth his brother, he, for he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Look at verse 21. And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Here's what you need to understand. To be right with God, you must be right with your brother or your sister. And I'm not just talking about uh, physically, I'm saying spiritually, we, can't, we cannot be right with God without being right with other people. We cannot be right with God without being right with other individuals. Go to James chapter number 5. If you're there in First John, go backwards. You're going to go past uh, yeah, the second and first John there. Uh, you're going to go past second and first Peter into the book of James. James chapter 5. So you're going to go backwards past first John, second and first Peter. James chapter 5. Look at James 5. Look at verse 8. James 5, 8. Be ye also patient. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And you know that's true. We're not, we're not pre-tribbers, but we do believe the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. We do believe it's getting closer. I mean, don't you believe that? That the coming of the Lord is drawing nigh. Here's what he says. Here's the context. He says, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. He says, because the coming of the Lord, that's what the word for means. He says, because the coming of the Lord draweth nigh, look at verse 9, grudge not against another. What does that mean? It means don't hold a grudge. Don't hold a grudge, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, behold, the judge standeth before the door. He said, here's what he's saying. God is coming back. The judge is coming back. The coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And because of that, you and I don't have time to be grudging and bitter and angry and upset with each other. Because you cannot be right with God without being right with your brother. And you better be right with God when he shows up. We're not, you say, well, am I, aren't I still saved? Look, you're, you're, you're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But when Jesus Christ comes back, if you're here on this earth, you're going to want to make sure you're right with him. You want to make sure you're going into that judgment seat of Christ, knowing there's nothing between my soul and the Savior. But if you've got something between your soul and somebody else's soul, then there is something between the soul and the Savior. You cannot be right with God. You cannot be right with God without being right with your brother. You're a liar. If you say, I love God, but I hate my brother. And here's what's interesting about this. Go, go, go back to Genesis 33. You know that you don't have to hash out everything, every little problem? You ever met those people that like, they, they want to just, they, they want to beat that horse. I mean, that thing has been long dead for a while now, and they're just still beating that thing. Now listen to me. Listen to me very carefully. There are times, there are times when we need to confront sin. Absolutely. If a man is committing adultery on his wife, we need to confront that. You know, if a, if, if a man has a, has a, or a woman has a drug problem or an alcohol problem, uh, uh, a drunken problem, we need to confront that. There are times when sins can be so severe. Remember, remember David. God sent Nathan, and Nathan looked David in the eye and pointed his finger in his face, and he said, Thou art the man. There are times 
when we have to confront sin. But listen to me, we don't have to confront sin every single time. Here's what I mean. You're holding a grudge against someone because they sat in your chair. You, you can just let that go. You, don't have, you, you notice that Jacob and Esau, Jacob says, here's a blessing. But you notice they never said, let's hash this thing out. What happened? Remember, well, here's the thing. I took, mom, mom gave me the sheepskins and I put them on my, you know, they don't go into all that. Esau doesn't say, we got to sit down and talk this through. Esau just hugged him. Esau just forgave him. And here's the funny thing. Esau's the unbeliever. Jacob's the saved one. And he just let it go. And sometimes, sometimes, if things are minor enough, sometimes we can just let them go. We can just act like they never happened. We don't have to hash every little thing out. Now, there are times when we do. There are times when sin has to be confronted. But every once in a while, you're mad because they parked where you normally park or they sat where you normally sat or whatever. Hey, sometimes you can just let that go. Say, why would I let it go? Because you cannot be right. Because you cannot be right with God while being right, while being wrong. I should say, with your brother. Go back to Genesis 3.3. So lesson number one, most of the things we fear never come to pass. Lesson number two, be right with God. To be right with God, you must be right with your brother. Lesson number three, this is the last lesson we learned from this. You and I need to learn to tactfully practice separation. We need to learn, we talked about it this morning, right? Separation. God expects us to live a separated life. But we need to learn to practice separation in a tactful way. So what do you mean by that? Look at Genesis 33, look at verse 12. And he said, this is Esau. He said, let us take our journey and let us go. Now I want you to notice what he says. Esau says to Jacob, let us together take our together journey and let us go. Now here's what you need to understand about, about Esau. Esau is not saved. The Bible is very clear about that. Esau is a fornicator. Esau is, is covetous. Esau is an ungodly man. Now, he's ungodly in the sense that he's just an unbeliever, right? I mean, as far as unbelievers go, he seems like a real nice guy. He shows up with 400 men, and he hugs Jacob, and he embraces Jacob, and they weep together. As far as unbelievers go, he seems like a real good guy. But at the end of the day, he's an unbeliever, and he's, a, and he's living in sin, there's a reason why his descendants are so wicked. There's a reason why his descendants end up the way they do. And this Esau, now that he's made things right with Jacob, says, let us. He says, let us take our journey and let us go. And I will go before thee. Look at verse 13. And he said unto him, my Lord knoweth, this is Jacob speaking, my Lord knoweth that the children are tender and the flocks and herds with young are with me. And if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Now notice what, notice what Jacob does here. Look at verse 14. Let my Lord, this is Jacob speaking to Esau, let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant. Here's what he said. You go ahead. He said, you, you, you go ahead. And I will lead on softly. According as the cattle that goeth before me, and the children be able to endure, until I come unto my Lord, unto Seir. Now I want you to notice something. He says, look, you go to Seir, you go ahead, let's, let's not go together, let's not journey together. He said, you just go on ahead, and, I, you know, I'll see you at Seir, maybe. Look at verse 15. And Esau said, let me now leave with these some of the folk that are with me. He said, well, can I just leave some of these guys with me? And Jacob says, I don't really want your guys with me. I don't really want your guys around my children. 
I don't really want you. I, I, I don't want to be around you. You're not the right influence. You're not the, you're not the crowd that I want to be with. Notice verse 15. And he said, let, now, uh, let me now leave uh, with these, some of the folk that are with me. And he said, notice what he says, what needeth thing? He said, it's not needed. He said, it, it's fine. It's fine. We, we don't need it. Let me find grace in, thy, in the sight of my Lord. So notice, so Esau returned that day on his way unto Seir. Now notice, where did Esau go? Seir. Where does Jacob go? Look at verse 17. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built him a house and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place was called Succoth. And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram and pitched a step before the city. And here's what I want you to say. Jacob did see Esau after this. Because the Bible does tell us that when Isaac died, both Jacob and Esau went and buried their father Isaac together. So Jacob didn't lie to Esau. He did go to Seir, and he did see him there, and they did spend time together. But here's what I want you to understand: Jacob knew that he did not want to live with Esau in Seir. Because you need to understand this. There are some people that we need to just not walk with. It doesn't mean we don't love them. It doesn't mean, you know, they're family members. They're our brother or they're our sister or they're our cousins or they're just friends from childhood or whatever, and that's great. We don't have to be rude to them. We don't have to be mean to them. But there are some people, as Christians, there are some people that we need not walk with. Let me show it to you. Amos chapter 3. Amos chapter 3. Look at verse 3. We're almost done. Amos chapter 3, look at verse 3. Towards the end of the Old Testament, you got those major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Then you've got the minor prophets, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Amos chapter 3, I want you to notice verse number 3. Amos chapter number 3 and verse 3. Notice what the Bible says. Amos 3.3. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Can two walk together except they be agreed? Listen to me. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. There are some people you ought not be walking in this life with. It doesn't mean we don't love them. It doesn't mean they're not our friends. It, doesn't mean, it just means Esau is living a certain lifestyle, and I don't want to yoke up with him. I don't want to be unequally yoked together. But I want you to notice what Jacob didn't do. Jacob didn't say to Esau, You are a wicked sinner. I'm not going to walk with you. That's not what he said. You know what he said? You go on ahead. Well, can I leave my guys with you? It's not needed. I'll see you later. He goes to Seir. He goes to Succoth. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Sometimes we can practice separation, but still be graceful and tactful in how we do it. We don't always have to tell everybody, you're a wicked sinner. That's why I'm not going to hang out with you. Now, there's a time for that, but it's not every time. You just need to realize that there are sometimes, there are sometimes that we need to separate from people, but we can do it in a tactful way. We can do it in a tactful way. Go to James chapter 3. Let me, uh, we'll run a couple verses and we'll be done. James chapter 3. James chapter 3. If you kept your place in James, I think we were just in James. James chapter 3, look at verse 2. Sometimes when we separate from people, we don't have to offend all of them. You're saying, well, pastor, you offend me every week. Okay, we're not talking about preaching, all right? We're not talking about preaching. You come talk to me personally. I'm very kind. There, there, there are two Pastor Jimenez's. There's the one that stands up behind the pulpit and preaches. And then there's the one that talks to you, right, at the door. And people come to me with the silliest thing. I mean, people, people come to me, I haven't been in church in six weeks since my goldfish died. And I'm, you know, I'm not like, you, you are, what are you, some sort of an idiot? 
I'm like, oh man, your goldfish died. I'm so sorry. I, I think the Bible says all goldfish go to heaven. Let's pray. You know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just telling you, we don't always have to just rip on people. You're so, you're this, you're that. Sometimes you can just be tactful. Sometimes you can just smile and nod and say, I'm praying for you. That's too bad. You didn't come to church because you, you know, whatever. The Super Bowl? All right. God bless you. James chapter 3, look at verse 2. James chapter 3. Now I get up here and I'm like, just stinking Super Bowl. You know, James chapter 3, look at verse 2. James 3, 2. Somebody needs to tell me when the Super Bowl is so I can preach against it next time. James chapter 3, look at verse 2. For in many things, notice what the Bible says, for in many things we offend all. For in many things we offend all. And this is specifically talking about leaders, leaders, pastors. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, notice, if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man. If you can figure out a way to deal with people tactfully and not offend them, you are a perfect, the word perfect means mature. You are a mature man and able also to bridle the whole body. And specifically, the context here is about pastors. Because, you know, we, because I stand up and preach three times a week, for the rest of my life, you know, for the last six years, and I'm probably going to do it for the rest of my life, it's very easy for me to say stupid things, right? It's very easy for me to say things. I mean, I, I, this morning, I, I felt bad this morning. I said several things, and I thought, man, why did I? That, that's not even accurate. I, I think I said, uh, I was talking about Brother Montel. Brother, Mont, uh, Brother Montel here? Um, where do you go? He's somewhere around here. But um, I saw him. I know he's somewhere around here, unless I offended him already. But uh, Brother Montel, I was telling their story. Brother Montel, there you are. Tell me if this is true. Were you already... Brother Montel, I got a question for you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm totally calling you out. Man, this is what I mean. I offend. I don't mean to mean to. Brother Montel, yeah. Were you already coming to our church before the Orlando thing happened? Right before. See, this, this, this morning I said you saw us on the news. Well, you, you were already coming to our church. That was inaccurate. I, you know, and I didn't even think about that until afterwards. I'm like, wait, I said that and that wasn't true. Here's what I'm trying to say. Sometimes as a pastor, you say things you shouldn't say. You ask for someone and they're not in the room, you know, or whatever. And, and, you, and you can offend. And, you can, and here's what I'm saying. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. The word of God, let the word of God offend. But we need to be careful to be graceful with our words. Go to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. I'm sorry, Brother Monte. I did not mean. I saw you earlier today, uh, tonight. Colossians 4, look at verse 6. You're there in James, go, go backwards, past Hebrews, Philemon, Titus, 2 and 1 Timothy, 2 and 1 Thessalonians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, look at verse 6. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. I will stop just talking to people from here, from up here. All right, I promise. <laughs> Colossians 4, look at verse 6. Here's what the Bible says. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech be always with grace. Let your speech be always with grace. Colossians 4, 6. We, some of you need to memorize this. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. You know, the Bible says that our speech ought to be with grace. What, what's grace? The theological definition of grace is unmerited favor. You and I are saved by grace, meaning we don't deserve it, we didn't earn it, but God gives it to us even though we don't deserve it. And here's what God says. When you speak, you ought to speak to people in a way, well, they don't deserve it. I know, but just show them grace. Well, they didn't earn it. I know, but just show them grace. Well, what they deserve is for me to tell them. I know, but just, just let your speech be always with grace. Here's what he's saying. You treat people the way God treats you. God doesn't come down hard on us every single time we say something stupid. But yet we want to, I'm, I'm going to get on Facebook. I'm going to make sure they know. 
make sure they know they told that story wrong in that sermon or whatever. The Bible says, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Go to Mark chapter number 11. Mark chapter number 11. Let me just show you. Let me show you one principle. We're almost done. Mark chapter number 11. We're going to look at Mark, and then we're going to look at Luke, and then we'll be done, all right? I want you to remember that Colossians 4, 6 says this, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Let me, let me say this. Let me teach you something. You don't have to always answer every question. You don't have to always answer every question. And you don't have to always tell everyone what you believe. Say, Pastor Jimenez, are you going liberal? I'm not going liberal. This sermon's going on YouTube. You don't always have to tell everyone what you believe. You don't always have to answer every question. You don't always have to tell people what you think. You don't always have to tell people what you think. We all have opinions about everything. You don't always have to give your opinion. Do you understand what I'm saying? Say, show me that in the Bible. All right, Mark chapter 11, look at verse 27. Let's see the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 11 and verse 27. And they come again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? Now look, they're trying to get Jesus to say something that is true. Because the authority that Jesus came, in fact, Jesus later on would say, we talked about it this morning, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. But they're trying to get him to admit something that is true, to admit something they believe, because they're trying to press him. They're trying to get him to say something so they can arrest him and kill him. But it was not, just, it was not the right time yet. It just wasn't the right time. So they ask him this question. By what authority? Now look, he could lie. He could tell the truth, and it would just cause things that aren't supposed to happen yet to start, begin to happen. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 29. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question, and answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, if you answer my question, I'll answer your question. Verse 30. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. Notice verse 31. And they reasoned within, with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did ye not believe him? But if we shall say of men, they feared the people. Notice how powerful fear is. They feared the people, for all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. So look at verse 33. And they answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Notice what Jesus said. Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's all I'm trying to tell you. You don't always have to answer every question. You don't always have to tell everyone what you believe. You don't always, these people were not ready to receive it, and we were like, ah, bless God, I'm an independent, final man. There are some things that your in-laws are just not going to understand. There are some things that your buddy at work is just not going to get. It's not that they're bad people. They're just not saved. They just don't see things the way you do. And you don't have to go around and answer every question. Well, here's why I'm not going to your house. And here's why I'm not going to do this. And here, look, they invite you out for drinks after, after work. You don't have to tell them, I'm not a drunkard. Say, <laughs> so what do I say? Well, say what Jacob said. You go on ahead. You go on ahead. You want us to bring you something? It's not needed. Is that what he said? You go on ahead. You want to sleep? It's not needed. Esau wasn't able to understand practical separation. So what did Jacob do? He was just tactful. He was just graceful. 
He was just kind. Luke chapter 4, look at verse 22. We're done. Luke chapter 4, verse 22. Pastor, can I, I can't tell my coworkers that it's strong to drink. Look, I've, I've told many coworkers it's strong to drink. I'm, I'm just saying, you know, the first thing I want to tell my coworkers is you need to get saved. And then you can start growing them and discipling them and helping. I'm just saying, sometimes when we're dealing with people face to face, we need to be tactful. We need to be graceful. Let your speech be always with grace. Season with salt. Luke 4.22, look what the Bible says. Luke 4.22. Luke 4.22, the Bible says, And all bear him witness, just talking about Jesus, and wondered at the, notice the words, at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Talking about Jesus. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? You know what people said about Jesus? His words are gracious. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. I'm not telling you to sin. I'm not telling you to go somewhere you shouldn't go or do something you shouldn't do. I'm just saying not, we don't always have to answer every question, tell people what we think, give them our opinion. Sometimes it's okay in the spirit of grace to just say, you go on ahead. Well, do you want, it's not needed. Well, what about, I'll see you later. Now, if you can do it tactfully, if you can get them saved, if you can help grow them, disciple them, do that. But see, usually we want to fill our pride. Usually it's not in the spirit of kindness, in the spirit of the flesh. We just want to tell people, you're wrong about this, and you're a wicked sinner, and you're this and that. You don't always have to tell people what you think. So what do we learn from this passage? What do we learn from this story? Number one, most things we fear never come to pass. Isn't that true? Most of the things we're afraid of never really happen. Therefore, quit worrying. We learn number two, to be right with God, you must be right with your brother. You cannot be at odds with your brother and think you're right with God. You cannot say, I love God, while you hate your brother. The Bible calls, that, calls you a liar. And we have to make those things right. Because to be right this way, we have to be right this way. You cannot be right this way while there's a break this way. The Bible teaches that all throughout. The Bible says that God, if you're married, God won't even hear your prayers if you're fighting and not right with your spouse. Because there's a connection between the, our, our relationship with man and our relationship with God. And number three, we need to learn to practice tactful separation. Now, there's a time to stand. There's a time to, 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 to yell and preach from the housetops. But even Jesus found himself in certain positions where he said, you know what? Right now, I'm just not going to answer that question. Right now, I'm just not going to explain. Because in this situation, it's just not right. And he was graceful. And he was tactful. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for these practical lessons we can learn from the word of God. And Lord, I pray that you would please help us, Lord. Help us in these areas with, with this specific story and the lessons we could learn. Help us to realize we, we, we all fear from time to time. There's people in this room right now. They're, they're afraid of something. Lord, help us to remember most of the things we're afraid of never even come to pass. And you've got the worry part taken care of. You care for us, so we can just cast our care upon you. We can cast our worry on you because you're worrying on our behalf. And if there's anyone in this universe that can do anything about the things we're afraid of, it's you anyway. So help us to learn not to fear, not to be afraid. Lord, help us to not hold grudges. Help us to be right with our brethren. Help us to try to make things right. And we don't have to go and talk about every little thing. Sometimes we need to just let some things go. And Father, help us to learn to practice separation, but sometimes to have discernment and to be tactful. 
and to be graceful in our words. We love you, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the great practical lessons we can learn from it. In your precious name, I pray. Amen.